Welcome to Peer to Peer, the podcast, brought to you by Rainer. Listen in as we hear from top surgeons having great conversations with their peers about hot and popular topics in ophthalmology. In this episode, host Gerd Alfarth from Germany is joined by Dr. Ben LaHood from Australia to discuss the benefits of different IOL materials. Professor Gerd Alfarth is one of the world's leading intraocular lens experts. He is a chairman of the Department of Ophthalmology Ruprecht Karls University of Heidelberg and the head of the David J. Apple Centre for Vision Research. Dr. Ben LaHood is a cataract and refractive surgeon. He is a world-renowned expert in ophthalmology specialising in laser vision correction, cataracts and other ophthalmic specialised surgery. Hello, I'm your host, Professor Alfard, and today we are speaking with Dr. Ben LaHood about IOL materials, what we know today, what is interesting today. So welcome, and I'm happy to have you here. Thanks, Gerd. It's great to see you again. Last time I saw you was at the Australian Character and Refractive meeting, which was great. And uh, I now know that you're a great karaoke singer. So lovely to see you again. Yeah, I don't, I'm don't. i glad you don't mention all the uh, clothes I had to wear during the <laughs> meeting. Uh, <laughs> so our topic here is um, the intraocular lens material. So the world is divided into hydrophobic and hydrophilic lenses, so to say. And uh, some people are now kind of fighting against hydrophilic lenses, want to ban them uh, because of some reports we had. And I think we will go into detail on that, but what is your general view on this debate? Uh, I think, good. I, I really think there's been a witch hunt against hydrophilic lenses because I've, I've been putting them in, observing them, seeing them for the last decade. I don't see these problems. I know that there are people out there with much larger volume of surgery that it get sent these lenses with concerns and have to explant them. And there are worries about that. Uh, but I really don't see it in my day-to-day -day practice. I'm not seeing hydrophilic lenses being an opacification problem regularly. I think we know enough now about the risk factors for that that would alter my decision-making perhaps about who I would put one in. Uh, but overall, I think the, the problem, the opacification issue with hydrophilic lenses has been blown out of proportion. What do you think? Yeah, I think I can, can very much relate to that. Uh, if I look back the last 20 years, we always have kind of waves of problems with different type of intraocular lenses, different type of manufacturers, not only uh, hydrophilic lenses, also silicone lenses, hydrophobic lenses. And uh, it is of course nowadays, because a lot of publications come out if you find a topic which is interesting, you publish about it. And we actually in Heidelberg also published quite a bit about uh, um, the hydro hydrophilic uh, calcification processes. We developed actually uh, um, a laboratory setup to kind of foresee if a lens is at risk for it or not. And um, I think it's completely unfair to uh, uh, say that a whole category of lenses is no good because we're talking here about an incidence in general of like 0.04 or something uh, uh, percent, uh, which is very low. And this is the reason why you, for example, just said, uh, you hardly see that in clinical situation. Yeah, of course, yeah. if you only implant one type of lenses, and if you really look into, uh, let's say a very cheap type of lenses uh, where you can make also economic uh, benefit from, there's a chance that you sometimes have this problem, yeah? And um, 
I think uh, I really uh, can can relate to your view. Uh, when you have these patients, what what kind of patient would that be? Do you always think it's a lens itself, or maybe there are also some circumstantial things, surgeries, or something being involved that lead to a, like what we call a secondary calcification? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, the counter argument to what you said about the very low percentage would be that this is a very common surgery. So even a small percentage is important. But in my opinion, if you can weed out those patients who would be at highest risk, you can really minimize that risk of opacification massively. So the, the two biggest risks that we know would be intraocular gas, without a doubt. That's the big one. And if anything, it's intraocular gas anteriorly, so post-DSEC or post-DMEC endothelial graft. And so if I did have a patient with a particular likelihood of needing one of these procedures, uh, such as bad Fuchs endothelial dystrophy, uh, a failed penetrating keratoplasty, something like this, obviously that will alter my decision-making. Uh, the other group that has been shown to be at higher risk of opacification with hydrophilic lenses have been diabetics. Now, people think perhaps that's a breakdown of the blood-brain barrier um, entry of different metabolites into the vitreous, but I, I certainly still use hydrophilic lenses in my diabetic patients because I think that there are often times when that vision quality that they afford is what I want for that patient. I think the risk of them needing a vitrectomy and trochlear gas is still very low. So for me, the decision-making really comes down to whether this patient would likely in the future need a, an endothelial graft. Do you, do you make those decisions or does that enter your thoughts at all? Yeah, that is actually uh, exactly the point. If we plan uh, a DMEC in a patient uh, who is actually still phakic, uh, we of course think about using hydrophobic lenses here in this case. However, if I think about it, in Germany, we do like 10,000 uh, corneal uh, procedures a year, yeah, the whole, whole country, and 1 million IOL implantation. Mm. So the likelihood of an average cataract patient to get into that situation is just very low. Yeah. yeah. And uh, uh, so I would disregard that. And you were just mentioned the diabetes patient. And if you think back in former times, we actually wanted to put hydrophilic, more biocompatibility lenses oh. in these kind of patients who are at higher risk for inflammation because the uveal tissue is very delicate. And if you place a hydrophilic lens there, you will have much better uh, uh, situation. And this also applies, for example, to supplementary lenses, which mm. are also in a very delicate places. So I think there is a, a very important role for hydrophilic materials uh, uh, in this case. I don't think that diabetics uh, alter my decision-making at all, because I agree with you. This is someone where we want a gentle material that will be very biocompatible, will give the best possible visual outcome, uh, much uh uh, a, a much bigger issue than this tiny percentage risk of opacification for these patients. So for, for the average diabetic patient, we see so many of them, it doesn't enter my decision-making. Yeah. And the other thing is, I think, I mean, without being really too, too bad, uh, we have, of course, on the hydrophobic uh, lens scale, uh, also lenses where we can say 100% of these have a certain type of opacification. We're talking about glistenings. Mm. It's very much downplayed, but our studies indicated that these uh, glistening patients have a huge amount of stray light, which uh, the, the older they get really can be uh, a problem. 
So here we have more or less 100% of lenses presenting this problem. Uh, luckily, not all of these patients have a huge problem with that in daily life. Yeah? But on the other hand, we're talking about hydrophilic lenses, which are uh, uh, in, yeah, incidents in, in the promille range, range of this. So I think we have to balance out this uh, uh, battle begins against these two materials also uh, with the side effects of the hydrophobic lenses. Oh, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's always a balance. Everything in medicine is a balance and we don't have an absolutely perfect material. I must admit, I'm a consultant to Alcon and to Zeiss. And so, you know, some of these glistening issues do belong to certain companies. Um, I, I, I like to be as evidence-based as possible with everything I do. And, you know, there was a lot of time where it was said that glistenings do not matter. They don't, they don't matter one bit. I think all of us know that they do and they can. Uh, and we can take lenses out purely because of glistenings, which are an opacification. Yeah. Uh, I believe that especially with the, the advent of more diffractive IOLs, presbyopia correcting IOLs, any of that scattering of light, any, any aberration induced by the material will decrease your contrast sensitivity. And there's good evidence to show that. So I think even the migration of certain types of lenses to uh, material platforms that have much lower rates of glistenings indicate that what surgeons have said and researchers have said is, is being taken uh, into account by manufacturers. And I like to think of it almost like a scoreboard. You know, if you were thinking hydrophilic versus hydrophobic, what are their pros and cons? And, you know, the pros of hydrophilic lenses with their ability to go through a small incision, their lack of glistenings, their ability to fit into little spaces like the sulcus very gently, you know, to me that overcomes uh, the, the small risk of opacification. And I think the idea of banning hydrophilic materials is frankly ridiculous. Yeah. I think one, one option that we haven't really looked at is also the, the ease of implantation of hydrophilic lenses, especially when I think about uh, training residents or having beginners in cataract surgery, a hydrophilic lens is much more forgiving in terms of implantation and the trauma, even if they screw up a little bit, the surgery is still uh, uh, neglectable compared to sometimes the hydrophobic lenses, mm. uh, especially if the hydrophobic lenses are very sticky, sometimes the haptic is kind of damaged or sticks to the optic. And then if, if a resident is trying to, to unfold that, get some problems. So as, uh, for learning cataract surgery, hydrophilic lenses are very, very nicely uh, uh, being a uh, I absolutely agree. I think uh, I teach a wound assisted technique because I like a very, I'm, I'm obsessed with astigmatism good. And uh, yeah. I think if you can minimize your surgically induced astigmatism, that's one area where you can improve your predictability. So I, I like to teach cataract surgery through a very small incision. And, and that means a wound assisted technique with most IOLs. And there've been a number of cases where we've had to tug a hydrophobic lens out of an incision, whereas a a hydrophilic lens, if it's halfway in, halfway out, can quite easily be prodded in without any damage to the lens. So they are a lot more forgiving just as a material. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think if we really look at it, there are a lot of pros and cons for both type of lenses. And uh, there's not, not really any evidence to ban a certain material uh, here. That's, that's really uh, not, not in the scope. Um, I think also... From a manufacturing point of view, some optics, especially now the very fine new kind of EDOF hybrid 
trifocal optics can be applied sometimes easier on a, on a hydrophilic platform, which is also an important issue here to say, because when we look at this scale of monofocal plus and, and, and EDOF lenses, there are a lot of uh, hydrophilic lenses on the market and not so many hydrophobic lenses. Yeah, I think it's absolutely true. I, I won't pretend to be an expert in manufacturing of IOLs, but I, from, from my point of view, when I think about, you know, I use a lot of presbyopia correcting lenses, just about all of them, uh, everything I implant really. And for me, it's more about the, the quality of the vision that that will give. And I, I just think that the, the idea of glistenings along with diffractive technology or even, you know, aberration involving technology like spherical aberration, it will decrease the quality of the vision. And, and for me, that's the, the biggest part that comes to it. I wonder whether that's got more to do with it than uh, the ease of applying these different technologies to hydrophobic versus hydrophilic for manufacturing. But that's something I think you'll know a lot more about than me. Yeah, we, we have seen a lot of companies coming up with very good optics and having struggled to put this on a hydrophobic platform or that the hydrophobic platform, uh, uh, I remember from Fusiol and the other, was not so successful than the, the initial hydrophilic ones. So we'll, we'll see about that in the future. But I think it's quite interesting that even though you are from down under and I'm from whatever, down, down over, you know, <laughs> we have a similar, a very similar view here uh, on these on these materials. And I, I think it pretty much represents what a lot of people people think and that the discussion is kind of artificial in a way. I think um, so, good. I think that, you know, when, when I train registrars and I, I, I have quite senior registrars, they're about to come out and work in private, work in public and be independent. I like to expose them to everything so that they can make their own choices about what they want to use in terms of IOLs. And I like them to use the hydrophilic, the hydrophobic lenses, the different uh, EDOF you know, designs uh, so that they can make choices. And it's interesting to see what their preference is when they don't have any constraints on uh, potentially referrals, um, the monetary costs, that sort of thing. And there is a, a, you know, they do enjoy using the hydrophilic lenses. They're, they're easy to use and they have good outcomes, good predictability. And some of the concerns that you sometimes see, uh, you know, their pacification, of course, we, we don't see that particularly. But even, even concerns such as, as the capsule contracts, will it warp uh, a thin, more flexible hydrophilic lens? I don't see that. I don't see this, this warpage that people talk about or, or these sort of concerns. So for me, I, I still feel very comfortable with my trainees using these lenses and, and me using them in private myself. Yes, I think the, uh, the, the factor of uh, capsular contraction and so also uh, stands in relation to, to the haptic design and mm. how, how you do that. We do a lot uh, with the Rayner lenses and the specific haptic design is designed actually to prevent that and to stay uh, uh, in the center and not to rotate. And you can do that with hydrophilic as well as hydrophobic materials, depending on how you design the haptic uh, exactly. action. Exactly. If you had your wish list for an ideal IOL, for me, it would be a, a haptic that can absorb that contraction yeah. in the haptic design. Uh, and I think the Rayner design of that haptic is beautiful. It, it makes sense and it works. So yeah. I agree with you. It doesn't have to compromise the optic design at all. Yeah. Okay, I think one topic we may touch is the PCO because this is, uh, um, I think, pretty much accepted that hydrophobic lenses have a lower PCO rate. The question, however, is, does it really have an impact in clinical life? 
because I, I cannot really say that I have a lot of patients complaining that they got PCO. On the long run, all lenses get PCO. And with the hydrophilic lenses, if they have a sharp edge, it usually is also delayed for one, two years uh, before it becomes significant. So uh, I wouldn't really make a big fuss out of this, but I think it's a fact that hydrophobic lenses have some advantage here. Yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm going to be the most honest surgeon in the world here and say that I make money from doing YAG capsulotomies. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm not particularly fussed if patients come back with PCO, that's absolutely, you know, fine. But obviously I, I want them to have a good experience. I don't want them to develop PCO overall. And to a degree, I'm just uh, joking, but I, I don't particularly polish my anterior capsule. I think there are benefits in leaving that. Uh, I, so I don't do anything particular to prevent PCO different to the average surgeon. And I've been using hydrophilic lenses for, you know, the last decade. I'm not, I, I probably do see a slightly higher rate of PCO compared to my hydrophobic lenses, but it's not something where I'm having a, an absolute waterfall of patients coming in needing YAG capsulotomies purely because they have a hydrophilic lens. I think part of it is that a lot of the hydrophilic designs I use are presbyopia correcting. And so I do have a lower threshold for doing the YAG capsulotomy because I think even a small amount of capsule opacity does affect them to a greater degree. But I certainly uh, am not am not bothered by the difference and neither are my patients. Yeah, I, I know surgeons that do on a very frequent base already after three to six months, a yak laser capsulotomy, just in order to keep the visual axis free so that the uh, uh, presbyopia correcting IOLs never get to the point where they have some issues uh, with opacification, which which is a, is a view you can have, yeah. Yeah, I don't have that view personally, mainly because I think there's the odd patient where three months isn't long enough to know whether they yeah. like the lens. And one of the operations I hate the most good is an IOL exchange. And the one thing that makes it harder by an order of magnitude is having an open capsule posteriorly. So I'm still quite tentative with doing an early capsulotomy. I still only do them when they're needed. Yeah. Okay. So I think we, we, we talked really in depth about the pros and cons here already in a, in a very short uh, amount of time, but I think we more or less touched uh, all the uh, critical topics here. And uh, as I said, I think we have a balanced uh, opinion here about the advantages and disadvantages of hydrophilic as well as hydrophobic lenses. Interestingly, a lot of companies offer both of it. Yeah, if we just, for example, talk about Reina, uh, it also has a hydrophobic uh, material, which is glistening free and very good. So these companies are really working on, on, on constantly on improving the materials. Mm. Even those who have some issues with hydrophilic lenses also change their stuff. So I think there's a lot of research uh, going on. And on the long run, I think the, um, the purity of all the material uh, will improve uh, uh, with a lot, in a lot of companies. Yeah, I think it's good for these companies. I mean, I, I think that some people might view having the combination of materials saying, well, you've got a foot in either camp, make your, make your choice. But for me, I think I, I love it. So a company like Rayner that does offer that difference, you know, if I want to put a hydrophilic lens in the sulcus, more than happy to, absolutely fine. If I want to put one in the bag, I can. But if I do have that patient with Fuchs who I think, right, your likelihood of opacification is very slightly higher than the average patient. I can still use their technology, but use a hydrophobic lens. So I, I respect these companies like Rayner that, that do produce both. I think it's, it's probably very expensive for them, but it's very good for us as surgeons. Great. So thank you very much. I think it was a very great uh, 
peer-to-peer uh, conversation here. And uh, I'm looking forward to meeting you again on some of the meetings. And thank you. Ed. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Join us for the next episode of Peer to Peer, the podcast, where host Professor Gerd Alfarth will be speaking with Professor Martin Dirisama from Germany about the do's and don'ts of toric lenses. For more information about this episode's topic and to read the show notes, visit the Peer to Peer hub at rainer.com forward slash peer to peer. This podcast is provided for general information purposes only. The presenter's views are their own. Rayner does not endorse off-label use. Users must refer to the product labelling and instructions for use for Rayner products in all cases. Not all Rayner products are available in all countries. The full disclaimer can be found in the show notes.